This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Math, a channel of the New Books Network. Our guest today is Jason Rosenhaus, author of Games for Your Mind. This book is about a panoply of logic puzzles. You'll find Mastermind and Sudoku discussed early on, and then you'll be hit with an incredible array of some of the most intriguing logic puzzles that have ever been devised. Some will be familiar to you, but some will almost certainly be brain teasers you've never heard of. It's absolutely amazing what a truly deep field grew from recreational pastimes, and this book is an absolute treasure trove of stuff you can't help thinking about. If you like logic, you're certain to be sucked in, but you'll enjoy the ride. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, Jason, what motivated you to write this book? Uh, Well, uh, you know, part of it was just that I've always loved logic puzzles uh, from the time uh, really going back to middle school when I uh, actually discovered Raymond Smullyan's uh, books. And I really enjoyed his knight and knave puzzles, uh, puzzles where knights always tell the truth and knaves always lie. Uh, so so logic puzzles have always been an interest of mine. And um, uh, I just thought it would make it an interesting book. Uh, you know, talk a little bit about what Raymond Smullyan did, talk a little bit about what Lewis Carroll did, and then talk about my, my own very minor contribution uh, where uh, I, I uh, discuss logic puzzles related to non-classical logics which I thought might be fun. So, uh, so that, was, that was the original genesis. Uh, I just thought it would make it kind of a fun, short book. Um, I have to admit, though, once I, once I started writing it, it became a much bigger project than I, uh, than I realized. Um, uh, and as you mentioned in your introduction, that uh, I came to realize that a lot of these recreational logic puzzles also impinge on big questions in, in philosophy and mathematics, and uh, it became really hard to separate what's a, what's a logic puzzle, what's a, what's a fun recreational thing, and what's an actually uh, like a serious question that, that professionals would worry about? Well, that an excellent segue into my first question. What is the difference between the everyday perception of logic, how mathematicians perceive logic, and how philosophers perceive logic? Yeah, so that's actually that's a that's a pretty deep question because uh, uh, one of the things I mentioned in the book is that you know in, in day-to-day life, uh, logic never really seems all that difficult. Uh, you know, if you say something like um, uh, I don't know, like, you know, well, you know all, all cats are mammals and all mammals are animals. Uh, anyone figures out that uh, that means all cats are animals. And, uh, you know, basic logic like that you do all the time. Uh, I use an example in the book where I say, you know, if you, if you misplace your keys uh, and you look for them by retracing your steps throughout the day, you're basically doing a logical argument. You're saying, well, I know I, I know when I had the keys last and I know I visited certain places. I could only have left the keys you know, someplace that I actually was. Uh, so I'll go revisit those places. And, and you don't even think of that as doing logic. I mean, that, that's so obvious and so, so simple. 
Uh, so in everyday life, just figuring out kind of what follows from what never seems that complicated. Uh, but, uh, but it becomes very complicated when you actually try to write down rules to this effect. Uh, right? Logic is related to language. Uh, and uh, somehow the rules of logic have to do with the way we use language. And that's where the philosophers uh, get involved, uh, where they try to uh, uh, you know, figure out uh, you know, what are the principles of reasoning and how do they get expressed uh, you know, in, in what we call natural language, you know, English, French, German, that kind of language. Uh, so that's kind of the philosophical uh, interest in it. Um, now, mathematicians, uh, of course, uh, we always use logic, you know, in, in just in our day-to-day -day life. Anytime you do a mathematical proof, uh, of course, you're using deductive logic to do that. Um, but for most of its history, uh, logic was not an object of study for mathematicians specifically. In other words, we used logic, but we didn't actually, you know, study logic for its own sake. Um, although that started changing around the turn of the last century, uh, you know, partly over concerns about the logical foundations of mathematics and certain things like that. Uh, and then more recently, uh, the computer scientists have got involved, <laughs> you know, in it. And um, uh, different systems of logic can be useful uh, in computer science for different uh, purposes. Uh, for example, uh, one issue nowadays is that computers increasingly uh, are expected to deal with very large data sets where the data might be contradictory in some way, like, like more recently added data might contradict earlier data. And uh, you don't want the computer to go to pieces like something out of Star Trek uh, uh, when that happens. So anyway, so, so the upshot is that you have all these different aspects to it. Uh, the philosophers have their interests, the mathematicians have theirs, the computer scientists have a third, and then there's just the day-to-day -day practice of logic, which, which never really seems all that complicated at all. So, uh, so I, I hope that answers your question. That might have been a little rambling. That's okay. Um, uh, ramble as much as you like. It's, uh, it's basically uh, what you feel like saying. But why do you think logic puzzles such as Sudoku enjoy such widespread popularity? Uh, yeah, um, uh, I think it's just that logic is fun. Uh, I mean, yeah, when, when, yeah, I mean, just, <laughs> Works you know, for when me. you come, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, when you come right down to it, that, that's good. Like, um, like Sudoku puzzles are a good example. I, I use that as an example of a, of a straightforward logic puzzle, uh, even though it's not really presented that way. That's exactly what it is, right? I mean, you're given the initial clues uh, in your nine by nine square, and uh, you, your, your job is to infer the logical consequences of, of, of those clues. And I think anyone who has ever done a Sudoku puzzle, and, you know, lots of people do Sudoku who never, say, read a math textbook or something like that. Um, but you know just how satisfying it is. You know, when, when you figure out, uh, you know, some, you know, okay, this, you, know, uh, you know, you look at some cell and you say, okay, there's a, there's a one, two, three in the column and a four, five, six in the row. And then there's a seven, eight in the box. Ah, it has to be a nine. And you really feel good about yourself when you do that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, which is funny. I mean, like, I mean, it's the most pointless thing. Uh, and yet you really feel like you've accomplished something. Uh, so, so at heart, I think that's what it is. Um, and and I, in fact, I wouldn't even restrict this to logic. I, I would say this is true of mathematics in general, where you have this phenomenon where you know most people will tell you with with, with uh, great enthusiasm about how much they hate math, uh, and yet often those same people will enjoy a, you know a clever brain teaser or a little puzzle, right? So it's not really the math or the logic that people don't like. It's I think it's the way it's presented in classes <laughs> is uh, what's unappealing. Yeah, and they sure enjoyed, you know, everybody enjoyed Sherlock Holmes and Hercule Poirot and the classic uh, logical detectives. And, uh, it, you know, that uh, the idea of logic pervades that as well. Yeah, and in fact, the, the, the final chapter in the book is all about that. I call them literary logic puzzles. Yeah, I know, uh, where, I got it. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, yeah, that, that particular chapter, I, I don't know where maybe we're, <laughs> that, that's actually the end of the book. But I, that, I'll, I'll just mention, though, that part of my own interest uh, in logic. I mentioned that I, I like logic puzzles as a kid. My father was always reading uh, classic detective stories like this. 
and um, he always had uh, all these old paperbacks uh, you know, stacked up around the house. And uh, there was just something when I, I remember when I kind of like got around like later middle school and I got to the point where I was old enough to read books like that uh, and really uh, understand them. Uh, I remember just how much fun it was that, uh, you know, the, these detectives like Hercule Poirot or Sherlock Holmes or Ellery Queen, they're basically superheroes. And, and their superpower is their, their, you know, their ability to use logic so, so skillfully. And it was just, uh, it's just so much fun watching them get the bad guy just by uh, you know, sheer brain power and applying logic. That's uh, a very interesting way to put it. I never thought of them as superheroes. That's clever. Well, thank you. <laughs> okay. I saw the classic five houses problem when I was young, and perhaps you could describe it and maybe one or two of the other logic puzzles that have endured. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, the five houses puzzle that that's actually been attributed to Albert Einstein, although apparently that's apocryphal. Uh, uh, you can you can find on website somewhere that this is Albert Einstein invented this. Uh, I I don't think that's true, although he certainly might have. Uh, but basically, the what what the puzzle actually is, uh, it's a list of um, usually like like uh, fifteen to seventeen facts. Uh, and the idea is that you you you're supposed to imagine five houses in a line, and uh, you know five different people live in the houses, and they have five different nationalities and five different professions. And prefer five different beverages, uh, and they each have a different pet. Uh, and the and the you know the the list of facts say things like uh, you know I guess each house is a different color too. And you say things like uh, the person in the blue house is not the teacher. And uh, you have a list of facts like that. And um, so this is a very famous puzzle. It exists in, in, in numerous different forms. Uh, for me, uh, when I encountered this puzzle, I, I, I was literally six years old when I encountered this. Uh, and of course, it was it, yeah. And of course, it was way beyond me at that point. I, I couldn't have handled it. But it showed up in a in a book of puzzles uh, that was not intended for adults. It was uh, like it had like like little word search puzzles that I always liked as a kid. And then all of a sudden, spang in the middle of the book is this big book. It, it was printed on paper that you were supposed to write on. And uh, and then spang in the middle of the book is this list of uh, seventeen facts. And I, I didn't know what to do with that. But the way it was phrased in the version that I saw was um, there was a specific question you were supposed to answer, and the question was who owns the monkey, and with a big picture, you know, with a big cartoon monkey at the bottom of the page. And I thought that was just the funniest thing, the idea of somebody owning a monkey. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I, and that's another one, actually. A lot, a lot of my early development here came, came from my father, uh, who always liked these puzzles. They showed it to him. And uh, as I said, at age six, I, I didn't know what to do with that. And uh, I remember my father getting a pad of paper and just you know, furrowing his brow and writing and scribbling on the pad. And then about uh, 45 minutes later, he said, uh, you know, the Spaniard owns the monkey. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, it looked like a magic trick to me. But anyway, yeah, so that's a very famous one. That's actually quite a difficult puzzle. Um, you know, logic puzzles in various forms have, have you know have existed for a long time. Uh, I mentioned uh, Raymond Smolia's knights and knaves puzzles, uh, where you have knights only make true statements and knaves always lie. Uh, but actually, puzzles about liars and truth tellers uh, they go back quite a ways. Um, the oldest specific one that I mentioned in the book was from the 1930s uh, and was uh, due to a philosopher named Nelson Goodman, uh, who was actually a very famous you know philosopher and logician. Uh, I believe he was a professor at Harvard for for most of his career. But anyway, he published a, a, a short puzzle. Uh, I, I think it would be too difficult to try to discuss the, the specific puzzle here. But it suffice it to say it was a puzzle of, of the liar and truth teller story. And in his uh, in memoirs, in his collected papers later, he mentioned that that little puzzle that he published in just in some local newspaper uh, received more replies and more mail than any of his professional papers ever did. <laughs> in fact, probably the sum total of any of his professional papers, because I've had that experience myself. Yeah, yeah, I, I can sympathize with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, there's another person um, whom we associate with logic puzzles that it's pretty astounding to me that we did, namely Lewis Carroll. We think of him as the author of Alice in Wonderland, but who was he and what did he do that was relevant to your book? 
Yeah, so that's an interesting story. And sorry, that's that, that's one whole major section of the book is about Lewis Carroll. Uh, now, of course, as, as you mentioned, Lewis Carroll is famous for having written Alice in Wonderland uh, and Through the Looking Glass uh, and various works of poetry as well. Uh, but he, he was a very interesting person. Now, you know, Lewis Carroll, uh, I, probably most people listening to this know uh, that uh, that was a pen name that he used. His, his real name was Charles Dodson. And uh, as Charles Dodson, he, he was a, you know, a reasonably well-known mathematician. Uh, you probably wouldn't rank him you know, among the absolute greats or anything like that. But he was certainly a very competent mathematician uh, who, who did a lot of very pioneering uh, things. In fact, there's a very there's a very funny story about him, uh, where some uh, some uh, prominent person in British uh, society, having read Alice in Wonderland through the Looking Glass, uh, told uh, Lewis Carroll how impressed uh, she was uh, with these books and asked him uh, to send her a copy of the next of his next book. Uh, well, his next book was a treatise on the theory of determinants. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and uh, I heard that that was Queen Victoria. Oh, was that? Oh, okay. I, I didn't hear that part. I, I uh, okay. So yeah, I mean that's such a good story. It really should be true. Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, but anyway, so so Lewis Carroll was well known as a mathematician, he, and he had, he even had a third line uh, where uh, he was well known as a photographer. Uh, now, of course, this was in the uh, you know the, the mid to late eighteen hundreds uh, when uh, uh, you know you know, uh, you know photography was a lot more difficult uh, than, than than it is now. Uh, and uh, but that was the third line. He was very pioneering there. Yeah, he did a, a pioneer work in voting theory, uh, the mathematical theory of voting. So, 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 so there you go. He, he, had, he had this kind of dual existence where he was known as a mathematician, uh, but also known as the author of these books. Now, it's interesting. Later in his life, he published uh, two books on logic. Uh, one was called The Game of Logic, which was literally a collection of logic puzzles. Uh, I'll say a word about that in a moment. And then later he wrote a more serious book called uh, Symbolic Logic. And that was intended, the, the book that was actually published was intended to be uh, the first of a, of a three-volume set. Uh, Lewis Carroll died before the second two uh, volumes could be published, uh, but a nearly complete manuscript of the second volume was later discovered uh, and published in the 1970s. Um, and uh, what, 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 what makes these works so interesting was that, first of all, Lewis Carroll published these works under the Lewis Carroll name, right? In other words, like he usually published his professional work in mathematics under the Dodson name, and then his, uh, his children's literature was under Lewis Carroll. But he saw his work in logic as being directed to a, to a very general audience. And in fact, the first book, The Game of Logic, was specifically directed at children, uh, that uh, these are supposed to be fun little puzzles to teach children logic. Now, the kind of puzzles he was doing uh, were fundamentally different from the kind of puzzles I've mentioned to this point. Um, you know, like, yeah, he wasn't doing liar and truth teller type puzzles. His puzzles were based on so-called Aristotelian logic, uh, which has to do with syllogisms uh, of the sort that I mentioned a bit, a bit ago, like if I say- um, The cats uh, and cats animals, and mammals, yeah. Yeah. That, that's, a, that's a standard Aristotelian syllogism. And, and his puzzles were wonderfully inventive uh, for uh, illustrating how to derive the correct conclusion uh, from uh, you know, syllogisms like that. And as I discussed in the book, he had a whole game, you know, he had a little game board and you move little counters on the board. And it was really very clever uh, what he did. And it was just, uh, and, and, and uh, just to wrap this up, in, in relation to what I discussed in the book, the relevance is that on the one hand, he, he saw this as, uh, you, know, you know, fun puzzles that, that they, even things that were appealed to, that, that uh, excuse me, even things that could appeal to children. Uh, but at the same time, uh, he saw it as a contribution to scholarship. And it's just a perfect illustration of what I'm talking about, uh, that uh, it's very hard to draw the line uh, between, you know, when is it recreational math and when is it serious, uh, serious scholarship. Yeah, um, one of the uh, things that your book did is it enriched my vocabulary with uh, a couple of words, one of which was, I'm not sure that I'm pronouncing this correctly, sorite. Am I? Um, I S-O-R-I-T-E? 
or don't you? Know? I, yeah, I think that's right. I, okay. I, it's, it's more common to refer to it in the plural, right? That's the writings. Okay. Yeah. Oh, uh, so okay. I, assume that, I assume the singular is all right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> anyway, what are uh, what type of puzzles are these? Uh, okay. So, um, so Sorites, uh, uh, you know, comes from uh, the Greek word for for heat. And in fact, there's something in logic called the Sorites paradox, uh, which is uh, which is actually separate from I think what we're talking about here. Um, and uh, in uh, the context of Lewis Carroll's puzzles, uh, a Sorites puzzle was basically just a long list of these uh, categorical statements. And when I, when I say uh, categorical statements, I mean statements like all cats are mammals or, or no fish are mammals. Yeah. Now, that's the kind of thing we mean when we talk about categorical statements. And uh, Aristotelian logic was all about what conclusion you can draw uh, from, uh, from categorical statements like this. So, yeah, so you know, I mentioned the game of logic a minute ago. Uh, Lewis Carroll in that book usually would give two categorical statements, and they would be del- del- deliberately uh, uh, you know, very humorous statements like... Uh, uh, like no oysters can dance the jig, you know that's the kind of thing <laughs> Carol would do. Um, but then in in his other book, um, uh, the uh, excuse me, uh, symbolic logic, uh, he would consider much more elaborate puzzles uh, where you might have you know three or four or five. And he he went really yeah he really went to town. He would have puzzles with like forty different categorical statements, and you would try to have to <laughs> deduce what follows from all of this. Yeah, if you've and, got a weekend uh, to work for, work on it, sure. Yeah, and yeah, uh, and yeah, I mean Carol really seemed into this. Um, but but here here again, um, there was a serious point underlying this, uh, which was that you know a, a serious question for professional logicians at that time was precisely this question: If you have a bunch of categorical statements, is there some sort of formal procedure that you can do, some sort of algorithm uh, that will allow you to just mechanically figure out what follows? Uh, and Lewis Carroll made an interesting contribution to that, where he showed basically uh, that you could take uh, you know certain categorical statements, translate them into a symbolic language. Uh, and then, uh, you know, by, by making very mar- various marks and underscorings, uh, you know, you could actually get, you know, the conclusions to sort of appear. Uh, and that was sort of the serious scholarly point underlying a lot of these puzzles. You can read his puzzles just as fun, humorous things, uh, but there really was a serious point to uh, underlying it. Um, I'm just curious if you have at hand um, uh, one of the short Carol puzzles that has amusing touches to it that you might be able to read to give the audience a taste for what they were. And if you don't, we'll move on to the next topic. Um, well, I do have uh, the book actually in front of me at the moment. By an amazing uh, so, uh, Yeah, so like here is, here is one puzzle that involved uh, three statements. Perfect. Okay. So the first statement was, no ducks waltz. Okay. Then the second statement was, no officers ever declined to waltz. And then the third statement is, all my poultry are ducks. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and wonderful. you have to try to figure out what follows from that. Yeah, yeah. just yeah. wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's funny. right? I have that puzzle there. Uh, I, I have to admit, I don't have the solution handy. <laughs> oh, no, we don't want that. Because what we want is, we want the audience to think about it and then go out and buy your book because there's a lot of stuff okay. in it. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. so the, the, the solution is actually on page seventy-one. I just, oh, okay. Carol also made puzzle contributions to the journal Mind. What did Bertrand Russell have to say about these contributions? Right. Okay. So that's another interesting aspect of this, right? Because Mind, uh, M-I-N-D, Mind, um, that, that that that's an academic journal. Uh, you know, the kind of thing that professional philosophers publish. It actually still exists today. Uh, you know, uh, that journal. It's one of the more prominent uh, philosophy journals. Uh, but even in the late 1800s, it already existed. And, uh, and as I said, this, this was not generally a forum for, for fun, humorous things. Uh, these, were, uh, these were very serious scholars 
who would publish their work there. Uh, but Lewis Carroll actually published two papers there, two very short papers. Um, but they became surprisingly influential. Uh, now, both of them, uh, on the one end, they related to serious philosophical issues. Uh, both of them were in some way related to the correct interpretation of if-then statements, conditional statements. And uh, that can be a surprisingly difficult subject in its own right. What, you know, you know, if you say something like if P then Q, uh, and you know that you know, P is true and Q is false or something like that, uh, you know, you know, what, what do you conclude about the whole statement? Uh, so, so on the one hand, he wrote these, these scholarly papers. But on the other hand, in true Lewis Carroll fashion, uh, he wrote them in the form of humorous dialogues uh, with, you know, with funny characters uh, and, and a whole storyline. And, uh, and, and so that, that's another illustration where on the one hand, he had a serious scholarly point to make. On the other hand, he wrote it as though it were a fun dialogue. I mean, I, I literally have never seen uh, any other scholarly paper written like this. I wish more scholars would write like this. <laughs> it would make their work more interesting. Yeah, it'd now, be a whole lot um, more entertaining, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I, I think nowadays, uh, you know, if you dare have some fun you know, with your research, uh, you'll be deemed unserious you know, for, that, uh, for that reason alone. Um, now, uh, the issue, I, I, I think we probably don't want to get too far into the weeds about what the specific issues were. But, of course, Bertrand Russell uh, came along. Uh, you know, he, he kind of rose to prominence in the late 1800s, early 1900s, one of the real pioneers in mathematical logic. And, uh, and, and he, he was impressed, actually, with, with, with Carroll's papers, he, you know, in the sense that he thought they raised uh, interesting and you know, important issues that had to be resolved. Um, and uh, Russell was, um, uh, he, he was a little bit mixed about Carroll, that he thought, he thought Carroll's puzzles were very ingenious, and he thought those two papers uh, you know, were, quite, uh, were, were quite interesting. But he also uh, commented that uh, you know, Lewis Carroll was sort of the, um, uh, you know, he, he kind of came right on the cusp of a major change in, in, in logic, that prior to uh, Carroll, uh, Aristotelian logic was really the main focus of what logic was all about. And then right around the time that Carroll was writing, uh, he, he kind of had the rug pulled out from under him. And, uh, and there was the shift to mathematical logic that people like Bertrand Russell and others like Frege and Whitehead were uh, you know, very uh, instrumental in. So the whole landscape of logic changed shortly after Carroll did his work. Uh, and Carol, you know, and these, uh, you know, Carol died shortly after uh, he, you know, he wrote his works on logic. They were some of the last things he did. So, so Bertrand Russell, um, who, who, who could be pretty scathing uh, towards people. I mean, you, you should read his remarks about Euclid. Uh, he, he was very unimpressed with Euclid, <laughs> um, but he, he had some nice things to say about Carol and thought his two papers in mind uh, actually raised very interesting subtle issues uh, that that he himself, Russell, uh, tried to address in some of his own writing. Yeah, you, what is the difference between Aristotelian logic, which you've sort of alluded to, and you know we think of it syllogisms, and propositional logic? Right. So I, I guess the, the, the probably the the, uh, the best way to put it is that Aristotelian logic is a subset of propositional logic. So you know what we usually call propositional logic, you can think of that as a big generalization uh, of what uh, Aristotle was doing. So Aristotle had a very limited interest, I mean, and, and this literally goes back to Aristotle. Uh, you, know, you, you can read his, his works on logic. And, uh, and Aristotle's idea uh, was that you know, his, um, he, one of his works was called The Prior Analytics, uh, where the idea was that he was trying to write down uh, basically rules for what follows from what. But, but that system of logic that he wrote, that, that, uh, that he wrote about uh, was part of a whole metaphysical system about human reasoning uh, and how we define things. And, um, uh, the apprehend objects out there in the world, uh, and then we draw uh, then we draw distinctions among the objects. Uh, you know, no fish are mammals; all cats are mammals, uh, and we express them with categorical statements. And then the third uh, part of it is that you then you then you uh, then you reason from lists of these categorical statements. Okay, uh, propositional logic basically says, well, there are other kinds of statements out there that impose logical burdens on people. For example, 
if I say if P then Q, if I if I say uh, if it rains then I'll go to the movies, uh, and then it does rain, you know, I, then then that implies that I that I that I will go to the movies, right? In other words, there are statements other than categorical statements that impose logical burdens uh, on people. If you say P and Q, that should imply that P and Q are both true individually, for example. Or if you say something like uh, P or Q, and then you find out that P is false, right? That should imply that Q is true. Um, so, so that's kind of the relationship there, is that Aristotle had a very limited idea of what logic was. And the reason he had that limited idea was that it really fit into his, his broader metaphysical program uh, that he was doing. Um, then uh, propositional logic is, the, is sort of this big extension where, uh, you know, you just view categorical statements as one example of propositions, uh, but there are many others as well. Uh, and the basic principles of propositional logic, I mean, that too goes back to the ancient Greeks. Um, but, um, uh, you know, that got developed all through the, you know, the, the Middle Ages and a lot of medieval logicians uh, had, had their say. Um, and then that really didn't change um, uh, right up until the 1800s until people like George Boole uh, introduced uh, mathematical formalism, uh, you know, into logic. Uh, and that eventually led to, to mathematical logic. Yeah, does propositional logic have something to do with Gödel's incompleteness theorems? Um, yeah, uh, in, in a sense. So, so Gödel's incompleteness theorems uh, are, are considered like one of the supreme achievements of mathematical logic. Uh, and um, the idea is that uh, you know, when, when we talk about mathematical logic, what we're really talking about is something called a formal system. And um, you know, formal systems. Uh, the, the idea is that um, uh, it's almost like, uh, you know, uh, let's see, like, like probably a good example of a formal system would be like the rules of chess, right? When you learn how to play chess, you know, you learn things like the bishop moves on diagonals, uh, the rook moves uh, you know, up, up and down and side to side, uh, the king moves one square at a time, uh, and, and, and these are rules laid down in the game. And if you ask a question like, well, what is a king, right, or what is a bishop, <laughs> or what is a, a rook? Um, you, you don't really know how to answer that, right? It, it's, it's sort of the wrong question, right? It's mm -hmm. not what is the game, right? It's what role does it play in the game, right? This is what it does in the game. And that's essentially what mathematicians do when you have a formal axiomatic system uh, that um, takes something like Euclid's geometry. Uh, he talks about points and lines, and he says things like, uh, for any two points, there's a line joining them. Um, and, uh, you know, nowadays we would just say points and lines are just undefined objects. Like, I don't know what points are. I don't know what lines are. But I do know that if you give me any two points, there's a line joining them. Uh, and that's the idea that we think of them as purely formal objects. Even if we have some real-life instantiation of them in mind, uh, you know, when, when we're actually doing geometry, they're just formal objects that satisfy certain rules. And, um, and of course, mathematicians get very interested in these formal systems because you like to have, you know, when, when you're proving theorems, you like to know what the minimal logical foundation is, you know, for, for whatever you're doing, right? You know, what are my minimal commitments uh, to get the theorems that I want? So, so that, and that's roughly what mathematical logic is. Mathematical logic is you're studying formal systems as objects in their own right. And Gödel's theorems uh, were certain deep statements about the nature of formal systems. And we can actually explain, you know, essentially why, what, you know, at, at least uh, the so-called first uh, incompleteness theorem. Uh, we can certainly explain in general terms what that is. Uh, the idea is that uh, you have a concept of provability, right? If you have a formal system, there are certain things that can be proved within that system. And then separately from that, there's a notion of what's true in that system. And that would be something like if you have a model that instantiates those axioms, what would be true in that model? So you have truth on the one hand and provability on the other. And uh, the, you know, the going thinking <laughs> at the time uh, was that truth and provability are essentially the same thing. Uh, if something is true uh, in the system, then there must be a proof within the system. 
And if you can prove something within the system, then the thing you prove must be true. Uh, and that seems very commonsensical. Uh, but Goodall's theorems were basically all about showing, no, that, that, actually, that actually is not correct. That if you have any reasonably powerful formal system, uh, then it must be true that there are statements in the system that are true but cannot be proved. Uh, e either that or the system is inconsistent. Like you could actually prove something that's false. Uh, those, those are your options. And, um, uh, and, that, and this was, uh, this was quite, uh, quite surprising when Goodall did this in the early 30s. And um, uh, yeah, so there you go. So it's not specifically propositional logic, but uh, uh, it's, it's, it's related to it in some way. Yeah, it sort of stu it stunned me that Gödel's results applied to arithmetic, and you think of arithmetic as being so basic, um, and it's so obvious, and yet there are some you know what Gödel showed is there there are really deep and complex problems involved with arithmetic and its axiomatization. Yeah. Yeah, and that and that yeah, and that's really well put. And um, uh, since we're talking about logic, I can give another example of that. Uh, which is Russell's paradox. Uh, you know, again, you know, Bertrand Russell, same Russell as before. Um, where you know, so Russell's paradox was the one about sets, where you say you imagine the set of all sets that are not elements of themselves, right? Like subsets uh, are elements of themselves. Like the set of all abstract ideas is an abstract idea. Yeah. Or this, right? Nice or, example. Or of, yeah, I love that example. Yeah. yeah or, or the set of the set of all things that are not watermelons, right? Is, is itself <laughs> not a watermelon. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So right. So so some sets answer to their own descriptions. Of course, most sets don't. Right. The, you know, the set of all red things is not itself red. Right. Um, so yeah. So it feels meaningful to say, oh, okay, I'll define a set whose elements are the sets that are not elements of themselves. And probably I'll, I'll bet probably people listening to this probably know Russell's paradox and uh, know you get led into trouble. And the thing that always struck me about Russell's paradox is that you know the the, the notions that it's based on are so basic. Uh, and so fundamental. You're just you're just giving a you know a, a defining characteristic of a set. <laughs> like what what could go wrong with that? And um, and yet you're already you're in you're in deep waters. And I so I like I appreciate what you said about Goodall, which is the same thing, right? I I I, I made a reference to any sufficiently strong axiom system. Sufficiently strong just means uh, you know powerful enough to be able to do basic arithmetic uh, you know, within. And yeah, and it's just astonishing in math and in logic and in philosophy. You know, seemingly the simplest things lead you into very deep waters very quickly. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, the next chapter of your book is entitled Question Puzzles. Could, perhaps you could start us off with one and analyze it. Or just start right. us off okay. with one if the analysis is long. Yeah. So, so you know, roughly what I mean by question puzzles is um, you know, puzzles where your job is to ask a question that elicits a meaningful answer, even if you don't know whether the person you're talking to is lying or telling the truth. And, and, and this is a whole genre uh, in its own right. And there's one, uh, among the question puzzles, there's one that's really so famous uh, and, and, I, and I think just so ingenious uh, that, uh, that it has a pride of place <laughs> in any discussion of this subject. Uh, it's sometimes referred to as the heaven-hell puzzle. Okay. Um, and because, yeah, because in the original version, it's very, it's very dramatic. Uh, and the idea is you're in a room uh, with two doors, and one of them is the door to heaven, and one of them is the door to hell. And uh, they're identical doors. You don't know which is which. Uh, I think we'll assume that you want to find the door to heaven. And uh, yeah, and um, uh, and there, there are two people in the room, uh, and one of them always lies, and one of them always tells the truth. Uh, and you can assume that these people know which door is which. Uh, but of course, they'll answer any question you ask them in a manner consistent with their nature. Uh, and you don't know who's who, right? So you, know, you could go up to one of them and say, and, and point to one of the doors and say, hey, is that the door to heaven? 
but but you won't know how to interpret the answer, right? If it's the truth teller, uh, you know, his answer will be truthful, and if he's the liar, his answer will be false. But you don't know who you're talking to, right? So any any simple question you would ask like that uh, just isn't going to get you very far because you won't know how to interpret the answer. So the problem is, what one question can you ask of one of the guards? Uh, you know, and and uh, you know, or, or, sorry, you, you can ask one question of one of the guards, and then based on that answer, you have to make your decision. So the, so the puzzle is, what should you ask? And, uh, and as I said, the key is that it has to be a question where, regardless of whether you're talking to the liar or the truth teller, you know how to interpret the answer. And this is another one that I heard as a kid. Um, uh, I, I think this one I heard in middle school. I think I learned this one in school. And uh, I, was just, I was just amazed by it because it just sounds so impossible. If you've never heard this puzzle before, uh, it, you know, it just sounds so impossible. What could you possibly ask <laughs> that, that would be meaningful? Um, but, uh, but, but, the, but, uh, but there really is a solution. And the solution is to go up to either one of the guards and you say, if I asked the other guard, which one is the door to heaven, right? Which door would he point to? Okay, let me say that again. You go up to one of the guards and you say, if I asked the other guard, which one is the door to heaven, which one would he point to? And now, and now the reasoning actually goes to, you know, the reasoning isn't too bad, right? If you're talking to the truthful guard, right? Well, then he'll say, well, the liar uh, would, would point to the wrong door, right? If you were actually talking to the liar, he would point to the wrong door. So the truth teller knows that the liar would do that, and he'll then point to the wrong door. He'll point to the door to hell. Okay, but suppose you're talking to the liar. Well, the liar knows that the truth teller will point to the correct door, but then he'll lie about it and point to the wrong door, right? <laughs> yeah, so, so it's almost like a double negative, right? You, you kind of, yeah. You're kind of tricking them uh, you know, into telling the right door. So, so the upshot is, Whatever, you know, whatever door the guard points to, you do the other one. Uh, and that will be the correct thing to do, regardless of whether you're talking to the liar or the truth teller. And, uh, and that's what that chapter is all about. Uh, and um, uh, there are many variations on the theme. And it's just, uh, um, you know, kind of, uh, uh, kind of surprising how ingenious you can be <laughs> about this. Yeah. Do you happen to know offhand what the provenance of this puzzle is? Uh, of the heaven-hell puzzle? Yeah. You know, I, I actually don't. I, I think this is one of those puzzles that has been around for so long, uh, you know, in various forms uh, that uh, I, I I don't know if anyone knows uh, the, the origin of it. Um, okay. okay. Uh, I, I, as I recall, I, I don't even give a specific reference for it. Like, I think that puzzle is now so famous at this point uh, that uh, you don't even have to give a specific reference of where you got the puzzle. Okay, I was, just, I was just sort of curious. I mean, I don't know. You know, my feeling is that something like that might have originated in the Middle Ages. You know, Aquinas or somebody uh, it, like that might have thought about it. Yeah, it's certainly possible. I, I must say I did not find any specific reference to it when I was doing my research. Okay. Uh, but uh, but it, it certainly could have been there somewhere. Okay. Um, you've discussed various types of logic, but there are two that uh, that come sort of at the end of your book. And one of them are at classical logic and non-classical logic. And I realize this is, uh, you know, this is a big ask. But could you sort of explain what the two are and how they differ? Yeah, yeah, we just we yeah we can certainly give the gist of it yeah with, without too much trouble. Sure. Classical logic is, is basically what any normal person would think of when you when you say logic, right? In fact, I think uh, as I mentioned in the book that if you're not mm-hmm. immersed in this subject, uh, the very idea that you need an adjective in front of the word logic to clarify what kind of logic you're dealing with that's going to sound very weird. Uh, and in fact, the word logics plural. Um, uh, that, that's a word you'll see in the philosophical literature. They'll talk about different, different, you know, different kinds of logics. Uh, the spell checker on my computer did not recognize that as a word. It insists it's not a word. <laughs> logic. Logics. Um, okay. Yeah, logics plural, and that's at the end. Uh, 
Um, so anyway, so yeah, so classical logic is just uh, the the normal sort of logic that that you know anyone you know it's the sort of logic that you know instinctively. Like remember when I said at the start that you know everyone you know like in day to day life you know no no one ever really seems to have all that much trouble uh, you know with logic. That's basically classical logic that you're doing, and in slightly more formal uh, you know in a slightly more formal presentation, uh, you get the system of logic that mathematicians use uh, you know in their uh, you know in their work uh, and. Um, uh, and, and, and there are certain fundamental principles that, that, that underlie classical logic, principles that, again, seem so natural and so obvious that, that you would just be amazed that anyone would question them. Uh, one of them, for example, is the idea that there are exactly two truth values, right? Every statement is either true or it's false, and that's it. There, there's no middle ground. There's no uh, neither true nor false. Uh, there's, there's no both true or false, uh, nothing like that. Uh, and then you have principles like uh, the, the law of non-contradiction. Right. You know, uh, if you have a statement uh, P and then it's contradiction, not P, those can't both be true uh, you know, at the same time. Uh, and um, uh, and you have these certain basic fundamental principles. Well, non-classical logic is then any system of logic that rejects one of those those basic principles. Uh, so, for example, there's something called fuzzy logic, uh, where instead of logic, you know, in, sorry, instead of truth being a matter of discrete values where you say true or false, those are the only issues. Uh, fuzzy logic might say something like, well, no, truth is a truth is a continuum, right? You have absolute falsity, which we might represent with zero uh, at one end, and then absolute truth, uh, which we would represent with one at the other. But then a truth value is just some number, you know, in that interval uh, that that you assign to it. And there might be situations where this is useful. Uh, you can also countenance like three value logic or four value logic, where maybe you do want to allow uh, an option like neither true nor false. In other words, maybe you want to say all statements are either true or false or neither true nor false. Maybe you want to allow that. Certainly in everyday language, sometimes you have statements that are not unambiguously true or unambiguously false. Maybe you don't want to assign their truth value. Uh, or maybe you do want to allow fuzzy truth. Like you might say something like maybe you, talk, you have someone who's 13 years old and you say, you know, that person is a child. Well, in some ways they're like a child and in some ways they're not like a child, right? So maybe you, maybe you don't want to be dogmatic about it. So, and that very roughly is the distinction. Uh, even things like the law of non-contradiction, uh, you can find you know, very high-powered books by very impressive philosophers saying that maybe the law of non-contradiction is, is uh, not all it's cracked up to be, right? Maybe, maybe we don't really need that. Um, and, that, that. and that very roughly is the distinction, uh, that classical logic is the sort of normal logic that most people would know, and then non-classical logic is where you reject one of those fundamental principles. And just like you can have you know, different systems of geometry, right? You have Euclid's system which seems very natural and very intuitive, but there are also non-Euclidean systems that are very useful in certain contexts. Well, increasingly, philosophers see systems of logic that way. Classical logic is a perfectly good system, and it has its uses, right? But maybe there are other systems that might be useful in other contexts. Um, one of the things that you discussed is the fact that multivalent logics can affect knight-knave puzzles where you no longer have the knights are exclusively truth-tellers and the knaves are exclusively liars. Yeah, so this, this was um, uh, kind of my own little contribution to this, uh, this genre, if I may, um, where uh, I, 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 you know, um, uh, we, we started, as you asked me about the, 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 you know, the genesis of the book, uh, part of it was that somehow I just, I just got curious about, about non-classical logics, uh, not for any really specific professional reason, uh, just for whatever reason it caught my attention. And I thought just like uh, Carol and Smolian use logic puzzles to illustrate ideas in logic, uh, it might be fun to devise knight and knave style puzzles, uh, but in the context of non-classical logics. So yeah, so you know, so if you're going to do that, though, you have to kind of change the rules a little bit, right? Because the old rules are that knights always tell the truth and knaves always lie. 
So I, I, I came up with this idea that people cycle back and forth between being a knight and maze. They're a knight for a while, and then they enter a transitional phase, uh, and then they merge at the other end of maze. And, uh, and I looked at what the logical consequences of that were. When, the, when they're in their knight phase, they only make true statements. When they're in their knave phase, they only make false statements. And when, then when they're, in tra- they're, when they're in their transitional phase, maybe they only uh, you know, make statements of a third truth value. Maybe we allow that neutral third value, you know, the neither true nor false. And, um, and then, yeah, so that, as I said, that's my own little uh, original contribution to this. Uh, and I hope uh, if I was successful, uh, I uh, maybe may- managed to illustrate a few issues uh, that arise in non-classical logic using the meaning of night and day puzzles. Yeah, well, that's sort of like what Carol did. Yeah, yeah, and that was my inspiration. And, 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 and Smolian did the same thing, by the way. Uh, I, 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 we kind of got, uh, glossed over it earlier, but you know, Smolian had these fun night and day puzzles, and you have these, uh, you know, these, these funny characters making uh, you know, humorous dialogues. But you know, some of his puzzles were specifically meant to illustrate Goodall's theorems. And uh, he was able to take you know, the main ideas of Goodall's theorems and translate them into clever puzzles. And you know, like, like most people, you hand them a logic textbook and say, go read the section on Goodall's theorems. Well, they're not really going to get yeah, very far. Yeah, good you know, but and, and yet, uh, you know, Smolian's puzzles illustrate all of the main ideas uh, in a form that are much more fun and engaging. And, and, and you know, here again, this is, this is really one of the big themes of the book, and, and kind of cycling back to where we started. Uh, it's one of the reasons the book ended up being a lot longer and a lot more complicated than I originally intended it to be. Because on the one hand, I was, you know, talking about fun puzzles, but on the other hand, it kept leading into, you know, scholarly uh, questions. And, uh, and, yeah, puzzles can just be a fun way uh, of introducing, uh, uh, you know, technical issues. In, in other words, as I, as I just said, right, if you hand someone a textbook, uh, most people are just not going to be able to read that, but you present the same ideas in the form of a puzzle, and then suddenly it's very engaging. You know, you mentioned something called the hardest logic puzzle ever. I know that I've seen Sudoku, which says this is the hardest Sudoku, and uh-huh. the idea of the hardest logic puzzle ever seems, uh, yeah, it 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 struck me that that was a very very bold statement to make. And could you tell us what it is and a little bit about its history? Yeah, so that's a really fun one, the hardest logic puzzle ever. That's actually the longest chapter in the book. Uh, I mean, it weighs it's something like forty pages in the book or something. And I, and I ended up <laughs> well, it's a hard it puzzle. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. Right. That chapter is called uh, the saga of the hardest logic puzzle ever, and it really is a saga. Um, and um, so, yeah, okay. So what it is. Uh, so first of all, when, 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 I, when I call it the hardest logic puzzle ever, that's not me calling it that. That is literally the name of the puzzle. Okay, uh, like like you you can type that phrase into Google, uh, and like probably the first thing that will come up was a very long Wikipedia article called the hardest logic puzzle ever, and uh, it was created by George Bulos, uh, who is a uh, philosopher. Uh, I believe he was also or no, he was at MIT. Uh, well, it was either Harvard or MIT. Anyway, one of those. <laughs> and, uh, someplace uh, in Boston. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, well, one, one, one of those hoity-toity schools. And um, uh, and basically the puzzle, I, I can actually tell you the puzzle reasonably quickly, although I don't think we'll be able to discuss the solution. Right? The, the, the name is apt. Um, but it's actually a, a very sophisticated example of one of the question puzzles that we were discussing earlier. So the puzzle is this. You imagine you have three gods. And once again, we're always very melodramatic in our puzzle statements here. So you have three gods. And one of them is named true, and one of them is named false, and one of them is named random. And the true God uh, always answers truthfully. The false God always answers falsely. And the random God, just on the spur of the moment, decides whether he'll answer truthfully or falsely. And they'll only answer yes-no questions. That's that's a major rule. And uh, when they answer your question, they will answer in a manner consistent with their nature. Uh, However, they will also answer in their own language. 
And in their language, the, you know, the words for yes and no are da and ja, but you don't know which one means yes and which one means no. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that's the setup. I'll, I'll just repeat it one more time. One God always tells the truth. One God always lies. One God decides randomly whether to answer truthfully or falsely. They'll only answer yes, no questions, but they use their own language where the words for yes and no are da and ja. One of them means yes. One of them means no. You don't know which is which. Okay. So the, the actual puzzle is uh, you are you confront the three gods and you are allowed to ask up to three, uh, you know, uh, up to three yes, no questions. And then based on their answers to those questions, you have to determine which God is which, which one is true, which one is false, and which one is random. Uh, and then there, there are lots of little provisos that you have to keep in mind. Like it's okay, for example, your, your, your second question can depend on the answer to the first question. In other words, it's not that you have to present all three questions at once. Uh, you can ask one question to one of the gods, and then based on the answer, you can decide what the second question will be and who you'll direct it to. Okay, so anyway, that's the puzzle. And it really does sound kind of impossible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it does to me, sure. <laughs> yeah, because again, I mean, it's like the heaven-hell puzzle on steroids. And it's like, what on earth are you supposed to do here? Because you, you, you don't know what the words mean. And, and if you're talking to the random god, there, there's no hope. I mean, there's this, you know, <laughs> there, there's a, yeah, so... Uh, okay, so anyway, Bulos uh, published this, not, not in a scholarly journal, it was, like, it was like the Harvard Alumni Magazine or something like that. Uh, it was in some semi-popular venue like that. And he also presented his solution. And his solution was very intricate uh, and required what we call biconditional statements. I mentioned conditional statements earlier, where you say, you know, if P, then Q. Uh, a biconditional statement is uh, of the form P, if and only if Q. Like P and Q are largely equivalent. And, he ha- and his statements, you know, it's, it's fun to read his solution just as a work of poetry. Right. Because uh, because the questions that he asked are these nested by conditionals where you say, you know, like, you know, is, you know, is a the case if and only if B is the case if and only if C. And you can drive yourself crazy trying to analyze you know, all the different cases. Uh, but anyway, that was Bulos's solution. And, and it works. I mean, you know, I, I, I at one point I spent uh, part of an afternoon, uh, you know, working out all the cases like, oh, my God, it really does work. But anyway, after I mean, you know, if you if you publish something called the hardest logic puzzle ever and you present that to a room full of mathematicians, you know, you know, good luck with that, because, you know, every mathematician in the room is going to try to prove, A, it's not that hard. Yeah. And then, <laughs> you know, and then B, come up with something harder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's and, that, and just to wrap this up, that's essentially the saga. It's okay. that, you know, after Bulos publishes paper, other people publish simpler solutions and, and then and then also increasingly more difficult variations on the puzzle. And, well, uh, and it just goes on and on. Well, and, of course. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That um, anyway, what is a meta puzzle, and can you give us an example? Uh, okay, um, uh, so so what a what a meta puzzle uh, is? Uh, this is this was another uh, Smolian invention uh, where the idea was um, you know in a typical logic puzzle, right? You are given certain statements, you know, you're given some information, and then you deduce the logical consequences of that information. Okay, in a meta puzzle. <clears throat> The, the information that you're given takes the form of knowing uh, that based on the answers to certain questions, certain other puzzles either could or cannot be solved. And um, uh, you kind of the classic example of this, uh, and this puzzle is not due to Smolian. Um, uh, the, the classic example uh, is, uh, uh, I think, I'm, let me see if I can quickly uh, uh, look it up. It was the one about the kids uh, playing uh, baseball uh, outside. Um, and... Uh, Ooh, I should have had this uh, at my fingertips. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So uh, so the, the puzzle says um, uh, yeah. So um, uh, you say like Arnie and Beth were having a conversation 
And Arnie says, what are the ages and years of your three children? And then Beth replies, uh, well, the product of their ages is 36. Uh, and then Arnie shakes and says, no, that, that's not enough information. Uh, so, um, uh, so then Beth says, well, the, the sum of their ages uh, is the same as your son's age. And then Arnie says, no, that still isn't enough information. And then Beth says, well, my, my, oldest, my oldest child, uh, and he's at least a year older than the others, uh, has a wart on his left thumb. And, uh, and from that information, uh, what we learned is that Arnie now was able to deduce what the ages of the children were. So the idea is we don't really know, you know any of the information that Arnie knows, right? Like we don't know the age of Arnie's uh, son, and things of that sort, right? And yet we know what Arnie was able to conclude or not conclude based on the information that he was given. And knowing what Arnie was able to conclude, that's enough for us to be able to conclude what the ages of the children were. Uh, and that's the, and that very loosely is the idea of a meta puzzle. It's that you know that it's that the characters in the story have information that we don't have, but we do know what did, what inferences the characters in the story were able to draw from the information they have, and knowing what conclusions they were able to draw, that allows us to answer uh, the original question. That's a nice example, and that's a nice way to phrase that particular uh, uh, that particular concept. Um, Okay, I guess the last question that I have to ask you about your book is what are liar paradoxes and can you give us an example? Okay, yeah, so, so the liar paradox, this is a real classic. Um, probably, you know, I, I have a chapter in the book on paradoxes. Um, paradoxes, I, I mentioned, they, they sort of straddle the line uh, between puzzles and deep philosophical issues. Um, like we mentioned Russell's paradox uh, you know, a, a little bit ago. That was one of the set of all sets that are not elements of themselves. On the one hand, that, that's just very fun and recreational. Like I think, you know, when, when you realize how weird that set is, uh, you know, you almost have to laugh or smile. It's like seeing a magic trick, yep. right? Like, you know, right, it's like you thought everything was fine and then suddenly happened that seems to be impossible. Um, on the other hand, something like Russell's paradox raises a very deep question, like what just went wrong, <laughs> right? Because it's, it's, right? <laughs> sure. I mean, I mean, sure, right? Right, you give a, you know, right? You give a predicate to use the fancy term and uh, you're supposed to be able to talk about, you know, the set of elements that satisfy that predicate. And it really feels like there's nothing wrong with Russell's predicate, and yet it leads you to paradox. So the liar paradox is, is, is like that. Uh, and the liar paradox, at least in its classic form, uh, you, you say something like, uh, this sentence that I am uttering is false. Okay, and then the yeah. question is, is that paradox true? Paradox of Epimenides, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I and mean, this goes back to antiquity in various forms. And, um, uh, and yeah, and, and, and probably, and again, probably people listening to this probably are familiar with this. Uh, but we can quickly say what the issue is, right? If I say, you know, this sentence that I am uttering is false, well, if you decide that the sentence is true, then then what I am saying must really be the case, and that implies the sentence is false. But if instead I decide the sentence is false, then that implies that what I'm saying is not the case, um, in which case the sentence is actually true, <laughs> right? So, so you get this paradox. And, and kind of the cool thing about the liar paradox is that it, it's really just nothing more than fundamental fundamental issues about truth and falsity. Right. These very fundamental ideas like, uh, you know, every statement is either true or false, but not both simultaneously. And then you're confronted you know, with this uh, sentence. Uh, and uh, and it's very mysterious. Like, what, what just went wrong here? And in fact, uh, I mentioned a, a little bit ago that there are people who even question the law of non-contradiction. They say maybe maybe that's not as not, maybe that's not all it's cracked up to be. Uh, and there's even a system of logic called dialetheism, uh, which is basically a system of logic based on the idea that, you um, some contradictions are actually true. And one of the reasons people study dialetheism is that it's a solution to the liar paradox. That, uh, that if you, know, you take a, a statement like this sentence that I'm uttering is false, uh, you just say it's simultaneously true and false. 
and then problem solved. And uh, the fact that people will, you know, and the fact that people will, I, I'm, being, I'm being a little flippant about it, but uh, no, uh, the fact all. that people will count, yeah, the fact that people will countenance this, you know, just shows you just how serious the issues were. Now, um, uh, in the book, I, I have, uh, it's not a whole chapter, but I have a significant section uh, on the liar paradox. Uh, I express a little skepticism about it because, you know, if you read the philosophical literature on it, uh, you know, people write some very complicated papers <laughs> about the liar paradox. And you have to wonder if, 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 you know, you know, like, do we really have to work that hard, uh, you know, to get around this? Like, you know, and, uh, and I, I, you know, I, I take the approach that I just say, you know, there's a distinction between propositions and sentences, right? Propositions are the things that are either true or false. And sentences, you know, declarative sentences are usually propositions, but not always. And this is just an instance of a sentence that doesn't really assert anything. And my feeling is, right, if you think about truth and falsity, you know, those concepts are, are really meant to apply to descriptions of the world, right? Like if I make a, you know, I make a, you know, I, I say something like, uh, uh, you know, my, 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 you know the, the sweater that I'm wearing is blue, which happens to be true. Um, you know, you take that sentence, you compare it to some aspect of reality, my sweater, uh, and then you can decide if it's true or false. But if you just say something like this sentence that I'm uttering is false, I, I don't know what bit of reality I'm supposed to compare it to uh, at this point. Like, I, I don't even know what it means to assign a truth value. I feel like it doesn't really assert anything intelligible. And that very roughly is the line I take in the book. Uh, I just sort of feel like, you know, you can just sort of, you know, you can kind of ignore senses like that and uh, just pretend they're not there. Um, most philosophers are not satisfied with that explanation, though. They think you need something a little, a little, a little deeper. Um, but it's just another example of something very simple, uh, something you could explain the issues to a middle school student. Uh, or, I'm sorry, not, not, not the issues, but the, the puzzle itself. You can explain to a middle school student. Uh, and yet it, it leads you into these very fundamental questions about what truth and falsity actually are. And, um, uh, and yeah, maybe that's, a, maybe that's a good place to wrap this up. <laughs> yep. Jason, it's been an extremely enjoyable experience talking about this book. And I'd like to, uh, I always conclude by asking how listeners can get in touch with you. Uh, well, I'm pretty easy to find. Um, uh, if you just type my name into Google, uh, the first thing that comes up will be my personal webpage uh, at James Madison University. Uh, and you can certainly find my email address there. Uh, my email address, uh, just for people listening, is uh, RosenHJD, R-O-S-E-N-H-J-D, uh, and then at jmu.edu. But I'm very easy to find online. As I said, just type my name into Google. Uh, I try to reply to all, uh, all correspondence about the book. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I'll be happy to hear from uh, readers. Okay. Jason, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me. Take care.